Well, we had a wonderful day yesterday in, well, it's outside of Buckholtz, Texas. Our day of Bible doctrine, barbecue, and bullets. There was a lot of, uh, of each one of those things, by the way. Anyhow, uh, they're thinking about making that an annual event, so those of you men that weren't able to go this time may have another crack at it, and we'll let you know uh, if that's going to be the case. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of naming any unconfessed sins privately to God the Father, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us another day to be here to exploit your grace to the maximum, to grow in grace and knowledge, to be prepared to be good servants to serve you so that we will have no fear and have great anticipation of the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ will have not only on earth, but also the victory over death which He gives us. So we pray that You will help us to focus on the message this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want to say is Happy Mother's Day to you mothers and especially to my mom. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I thought I would give the mothers and I guess the, the dads uh, as well uh, a treat with some quotes that I found that I think you will like. At least I hope you will. This is for the mothers. All mothers are working mothers. Would you agree to that? You know they say, are you a working mother? <laughs> what a silly question. This is an old saying that's true. A man's work is from sun to sun, but a woman's work or a mother's work is never done. Yeah, I know <laughs> So far, so good, huh? A suburban mother's role is to deliver chills obstetrically once and by car forever after. <laughs> a mother understands what a child does not say. Before I got married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. <laughs> if he has six children, he probably doesn't have much of anything else. <laughs> Biology is the least of what makes someone a mother. It kills you to see them grow up, but I guess it would kill you quicker if they didn't. <laughs> Children are a great comfort in your old age, and they help you reach it faster, too. <laughs> Insanity is hereditary. <laughs> you get it from your children. There's only one pretty child in the world, and every mother has it. That reminds me of before I had a daughter... I, I thought all children were ugly. 
bald-headed, no teeth, looked like old men, only they couldn't control themselves at either end. They slobber all over themselves. And I thought, and I never could understand. People would go and see a baby, and it's all contorting. It's not even, can't even move smoothly. And they, oh, how beautiful. And I'm thinking, what are they seeing? Until I had my daughter. She was by far the most beautiful daughter. I know you laugh, but it's true. I've got pictures. Sweater. Definition of a sweater. A noun. A garment worn by a child when his mother is feeling chilly. That's not supposed to be funny. It's true, isn't it? Each day of our lives, we make deposits in the memory banks of our children. Now, that's good for both parents, both the mothers and fathers. The children are watching and they're learning and they're filing away what you say and what you do into their memory banks, and it will be there from now on. So, I thought you might like those quotes. On a more serious note, <clears throat> we are very thankful for godly mothers. They are becoming like godly men, fewer and fewer. And what an example we have in this church of so many mothers that are sterling examples. And we appreciate that. Just thought I'd tell you that. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the way, if you're a woman and you do not have children, read Psalm 113. Okay? Now we're going to get on with our Joshua series. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Did you ever think there was so much in Joshua chapter 5? I didn't. And we're not quite done yet with chapter 5. <clears throat> we're going to start with verse... Let's see... Verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us or our adversary? And he said, No, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to, this, to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Tell you what, when you're in a position like Joshua and you have such great responsibility, you see both the Lord's testing and His faithfulness. They've crossed the river. They've done everything as the Lord intended. And they had the Passover. All this had great significance. But now it was time to get on with the business of conquering the promised land. And right before them was a city that they could not go around. They had to take the city, a fortified city, Jericho. And God had not told Joshua anything about how you are going to take it. When are you going to take it? Nothing. And so you can see Joshua, he's, he's no doubt anticipating, he's thinking, okay, I need instructions. And so he's, I don't know whether he was just walking out and he was kind of perusing the walls of Jericho and trying to decide what to do. Anyway, the last thing that he expected was to see a man that, was, that confronted him with a drawn sword. Now, the first thing he thought probably was, who is this guy and what is he doing with a drawn sword? I didn't give any orders for anyone to be out here, much less with a sword that is drawn. And he was probably also thinking about, he was meditating, how am I going to take this city? Because it had these, these, actually Jericho had two walls, double walls, thick walls. They had no battering rams. They had no towers to put into place. They had no catapults. They didn't have anything that would be the normal implements of war that would be necessary to take a fortified city. And so he's, as he's thinking about this, he goes out there and then this man confronts him. And Joshua was a brave soul. He was at least as old as I am, probably older. And here he has this, this man, this soldier, with a sword drawn, and he asks him the question, are you for us or against us, essentially? And then, of course, the reply is, no, rather, I come as a captain of the hosts of the Lord. And you think, hmm. Joshua thought he was the captain of the host of the Lord. A bit confusing. And Joshua was ready to fight this guy if necessary. He didn't turn and run. He was getting the facts. That's what any good leader does. Anybody in responsibility needs to get the facts, and he's getting the facts. And so he tells him that this man, that he is the captain of the host, and Joshua falls on the face on his face, and asked, what does my Lord want of me? Now, the answer that the man gave is really giving us information as to his identity. The word host in the Hebrew, the Lord of hosts, you hear that sometimes, Usually, not always, but the great majority of the time is referring to an angels, to the angelic armies. A few times not so, but most of the time it is referring to the angelic host. So him saying that he is the captain of the Lord's host would give you an indication that he's not just an average man because he's in charge of not only the Israelite armies but also the angelic host, the armies. 
So that gives us some uh, revelation. And then we're not sure in verse 14 to what degree that Joshua understands the notability, the authority, the personage of this man. He knows for sure that he's outright. And that's why he asked him, what would my Lord have me do? Because uh, he doesn't know. What we're going to see is this is no less than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't appear necessarily that he knew that at this point. But he wasn't going to take issue with him and argue over uh, who had the most authority. He, he, he understood that he was outranked, and so he's going to submit to that. So he recognized that it doesn't matter how far you advance, how much authority you may have, there's always someone that has higher authority. In the household, the husband is the authority. You don't go higher than that in the household. But does that mean that the husband is not under authority? Not at all. Answerable to the Lord. In the local church, the pastor teacher is the authority. Does that mean that he's not to submit to a higher authority? Of course not. He's answerable to the Lord himself. It doesn't matter where you go in society, where, whatever it, the, um, the ranking may be, always someone is going to be over you in authority. He recognized that. Even if he didn't recognize it was Jesus Christ, he understood that this person had authority over him and he was willing in an instant to submit to him. It wasn't out of fear. If he would have said, if the man would have said, I'm not your friend, I'm your foe, I'm your enemy... I don't know if Joshua had a sword with him. Probably did. They would probably start engaging in battle right then. So that's a few of the things we learned about uh, verse 14. He says, I am the captain of the host of the Lord, of the, even the angelic creatures. And that's when Joshua fell on his face, bowed down to him, and he wants to know, I'm your servant. What would you have me do? Now, verse 15, this is the last verse in chapter 5, and it's very interesting, a lot more than what just meets the eye here. And the captain of the Lord's host said, Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua didn't hesitate to do that. Now, where have you heard that before? Have you heard that before? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. And you will note, of course, this is... The Lord Jesus Christ speaking from the burning bush to Moses. And if you'll, you'll note, he says, then he said, this was the Lord from the burning bush, do not come near here, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now if you go to verse 15, remove your sandals from, the, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Word for word. Same thing. Now, this was given for the purpose of 
Joshua being able to identify who this was. Now, he knew he was outranked. He had great respect for the one that had confronted him and addressed him. But now, he knows that he is talking to none, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that spoke to Moses. And purposely, the Lord said that so that he could identify him there. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is the only member of the Godhead that is visible or ever will be visible. And so when you see manifestations, whether it be visibility, if it's a theophany, whether it was the, the cloud during the day that led the Israelites, or whether it was the fire at night, whether it was... the the, sometimes he's referred to as the rock we, we sang this morning, the solid rock. Remember when, when um, Moses hit the rock and the water came out? There's all types of, of revelations of Jesus Christ, but it's always Jesus Christ. And here we have another manifestation. Now, this is not, this is not the same as, as the incarnation. This was, there was another time that Jesus Christ revealed himself as a man. Let's go there. That's in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1. Now, this is referring to Abraham in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him, that would be Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. The, the Hebrew word here for uh, when he looked and behold, it wasn't as if he saw them coming from a distance and they got larger and larger as they came into his vision of sight it's as if he was just looking around and, and the next thing he knew there were three men standing in front of him and so and when he saw them he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said my lord if now i have found favor in your sight please do not pass your servant by and so here we have jesus christ presenting himself before Abraham, and he appeared as a man, just as he appeared as a man before Joshua. The, the interesting thing here is that Jesus Christ appeared as a traveler to Abraham. What was Abraham? He was a traveler. He appeared to Joshua as a soldier. What was Joshua? He was a soldier. So it appears that when Jesus Christ identifies himself with, with people, when he manifests himself in this way, he appears as, uh, as he, he can identify with the person's situation. Uh, he can, uh, in other words, he identifies himself with the situation of the one in whom he visits. 
What about Moses? We just talked about Moses in the burning bush. Now, he, he presented himself or identified himself to Moses as fire. Now, how does that jive with Jesus Christ appearing to people in, in identifying himself with the situation in which they are in? That one seems to be a little harder. But we know in Exodus, excuse me, Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 20, it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession. Over and over again, when you read in the accounts in Genesis about the, in, in Exodus as well, uh, the Israelites being in captivity, it is, it is related to fire. It's related to a furnace. And so when Jesus Christ appears to Moses, he appears as fire because that's what he can identify with. The time that they were in bondage is related in the Bible as fire. So isn't it interesting that when Jesus Christ identifies himself with these people in these instances, he is very aware of, maybe you could even say sympathetic to whatever plight they may have and their circumstances, and he appears in a way that they can relate to him as a soldier, as a traveler, or as a fire. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, which is a New Testament scripture, the passage refers to uh, Moses, and he says, quote, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So this again relates the fact that, G that Moses was talking to Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. And when he told Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for you're standing on holy ground, Joshua got it. He knew exactly what he was, he was to do. Now, here's another something that we can relate to. How about when Jesus Christ came in the incarnation. You all know what the incarnation is. That's when he was born of a virgin and he became the God-man. How did he relate to our situation there? Well, the fact that he became a man, he was a genuine man. And man has weaknesses. And so he was identifying with our weakness, our human frailties, when he came in the incarnation and identified with us. It's hard for us to imagine if he came as something else because it wouldn't fit. But he came as a man and identified with our weakness. In fact, he's called the Son of Man. And in the Son of Man, we can realize that he can identify with us. When Jesus Christ walked the earth and, and he was a carpenter and he was maybe nailing a board, and he hit the wrong nail. You know what I'm talking about? He hit his thumb. It hurt. But his reaction, I know, would be different from what mine is. When I hit this instant, why is that? I mean, just the real sin nature just pops out. You can't even hardly keep a lid on it. And you say something, 
Don't sit there and look so pious. What is he talking about? Slam your hand in the door and see what comes out. He could identify with our weaknesses. Isn't it great that we have a God, first of all, that would condescend to become a creature, a creature lower than the angels. I mean, we are wimpos compared to angels. And he didn't even, he didn't become an angel. He became man for us. He identified with us in our circumstances and our circumstances are frail and weak. Here we have the God of the universe who left the glory of heaven to identify with a creature lower than the angels. I think that's something to salute. So, just as the Lord was there for Moses, just as He was there for Joshua, before they were going to be tested, before they were going to go into the battle, so He is there for you and for me. And you say, well, I haven't seen him. He didn't talk to me. We see him through the Word. We hear him through the Word. He is always there for us. Can you, can you see the love and consideration that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, had for Joshua? He didn't send a messenger. He came personally to direct Joshua. And there's something else about this that I think some of you might be able to appreciate. Joshua had a heavy load, wouldn't you agree? Tremendous responsibility. How would you like to have the responsibility of around two, two million people and you were the, were the one that they looked to for guidance? Only they were sheep. They acted like sheep most of the time. And sheep, they, they're everywhere. Herding sheep is kind of like herding cats. It's, uh, they just wander off. I, what I think about when I think about uh, herding sheep and cats and so forth, I used to be a substitute teacher from time to time in, at Burton well, High School and Elementary School. And about the second time they called me to come teach, it was the uh, kindergarten or first grade. They're little toddlers. And it was in the gym. And I thought, oh, this is going to be easy duty. <laughs> and there was about 20 of them. And so I said, okay, we're going to line up. We're going to have these uh, four rows of five kids. And I, and, and I get them out, you know, and they're just, they're just, Wandering around, and I'd get them all in. I'd get this one in line. I'd get this one in line. I'd turn around and get this one in line. And I'd turn around, and there's nobody behind me. They're just wandering. And I th that's what I did the whole time. We never got a line. Well, we got them for a minute or so. And that's what I'm thinking about Joshua. Only he had two million. And, of course, it was much more serious than that. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out is because when he saw that this was the Lord Jesus Christ, First of all, he had great awe and respect, humility, and, and very willing to submit. But this is the other side of that, and that is he was very relieved. 
He was very relieved that someone that was more powerful than him, someone that had more wisdom than he did, someone was really the one that was taking charge. And that's the way it is with us, isn't it? I don't know how heavy your load may be, but we need to see the Lord Jesus Christ standing there with a sword in his hand ready to do battle for us because that is a great relief. And I'll say this now, and I'll probably close with this same thought. What the Lord was telling Joshua is the battle is the Lord's. It's not your battle. It's my battle. Look, I have a drawn sword. I will do battle for you. And when we get into chapter 6, which we're about to get into, he's going to tell Joshua, I have already given you Jericho, the king, and all the soldiers. He didn't say, I'm going to give you them. They're already yours. Now, wouldn't that be a great relief with the battles that you're facing? The Lord is coming to you this morning through the Word, as it were, with a drawn sword, and He is telling you, you better forget about the enemy. You better forget about being afraid. What you better do is recognize who's in charge and who I am. And I'm on your side. And I've already given you the victory. That's what He told Joshua. And what can you do then? Just relax. Isn't that great? See, the battle is up here. And the Lord is telling us this morning, I'm on your side. My sword is drawn. What you need to do is to reverence me. It's all about me. It's not about you and the enemy. It's about you and the Lord. What is your relationship with Him? What is your trust like with Him? I think that's a beautiful thing, what He did for for Joshua. Now here's one other thing. I, I don't know what Joshua's, what his thinking was after the, there, there was somewhat of a pause. They went through the river. Oh, a lot of excitement, a lot of wonderful, great things had happened. And now there's kind of like a little pause and he's thinking, what now? I don't know how long he thought that, but it must have seemed like an eternity. I don't have any instructions. These two million people are ready. What are we going to do? When are we going to move out? We don't have any embattlements. How are we going to take this city? I don't know anything. You ever been like that? Been in a situation? Here's what I've got to do. I don't have anything to do with it. I don't have a clue how I'm going to do it. The Lord waited probably a lot longer than what Joshua wanted, but he was faithful. Joshua relied on the Lord, and the Lord not only did not send a message or a messenger, he showed up personally. And he, he saved the day for Joshua. I'm telling you what, after Joshua was probably alarmed, maybe a bit frightened at first, wouldn't you be startled at least? You're out there, that's the last thing you expect, and then this guy says, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. And you say, oh, oh, didn't, didn't know that. I thought I was the one. Then the next thing you know, when he says, take off your shoes, whoo. Joshua was very in awe of who was there, but he was very relieved. You want to be relieved today? What are you facing? 
we can take a lot of note from this, can't we? I think that's a fantastic way to stop or end chapter 5. Now we're going to chapter 6. Are y'all ready? Are y'all ready? Okay. Chapter 6. Now, chapter 6 starts already with a problem. Because when you see chapters divided, that's not inspired. Someone decided to put chapter 6 starting right after verse 15 of chapter 5. It's an arbitrary thing. Most of the time it doesn't make that much difference, but uh, what we need to know about uh, this chapter is actually chapter 6 should have started between verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. I'm just saying when you, when you see the context and you see what's happening, that's where the chapter should break. And when you look at verse 1, let's read verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Okay, we already knew that, didn't we? Remember, the Canaanites were so frightened that <laughs> they thought, well, we have succussion. The, the, the Jordan River is a mile wide. How are they going to cross that? We've got some time. The next thing they know, uh, sorry to tell you this, but the Israelites have crossed the river on dry ground and their God is coming with them. And what they do? They were in the middle of harvesting. They just dropped everything, all their food, everything, and ran and got behind the walls. And so what did the Israelites do? They had their, their harvest, and the God had designed it that way. And the reason that they did that is because of the walls. Now, this is going to be huge. What do you remember about Jericho? Even maybe as in, in, a, in a, a vacation Bible school. The walls, right? It's about the walls. The walls fell down, right? Well, even here in verse 1, and by the way, verse 1 is parenthetical. It's just inserted there uh, to give you information, but it's not necessarily in the flow. So, it's about the walls. The reason no one could go in and no one could come out is because they had a huge fortified fortress with double walls. You get that. But there's a lot more about the walls. Even you'll understand why. Why did God choose Jericho? Out of all the other cities that they were going to conquer and they were going to attack, no other ones were, were conquered this way. This is the only one where the walls were a, a real issue. And this is what we're going to look at. Uh, in verse 1, like I said, it's parenthetical, and it makes a connection with what is given in verses 2 through 6. Now, you get details through verses 2 through 6, but the connection with verse 1 and what's going to happen in verses 2 through 6 are the walls. The walls is a big deal, as we're going to see. Verse 1 demonstrates that the Canaanites put their trust in the walls. You got that? The Canaanites, the unbelievers, trusted the walls. They could have fled to the mountains. They could have fled to maybe other cities. They could have met the Israelites out on the field of battle. But they didn't do any of those things because they ran and they hid behind the walls. Why did they hide behind the walls? Because they thought, hmm, we're safe now. That God of Israel can't touch us here. They were thinking that, well, what they didn't know is that there is no place safe. 
There is no wall big enough. There is no safe house for someone to hide from the righteous judgment of God. And they had to learn a lesson. Did they learn the lesson? What happened to the walls? The very walls that they were depending on to save them is what killed them. That makes me think about the unbelievers. The very thing that unbelievers think are going to save them, their good works are going to be what they're indicted for at the great white throne. Because no one can hide from the righteous judgment of God. So God is going to teach them a lesson with walls. You want to hide behind walls? Have at it. I wouldn't stand too close. <laughs> so that's what he's going to teach to the unbelievers. Now, we're also... Um, oh, here's, here's a verse that tells you that, uh, that they depended on walls for safety. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 52 says, And it shall besiege you in all of your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. So that was the typical thing. And if you had a city, it was fortified. It had walls around it. The bigger the walls, the thicker the walls, the more of them you had, the safer you were. That was the idea. Now, the Israelites had to learn a lesson about walls also. You know what their lesson was? Remember when the spies went in the first time before they, they were supposed to cross the river and they sent the spies out and they spied for 40 days and they came back and gave the boo-hoo report. Remember that? One of the things that they were crying about was the fortified cities, which means they have big walls around them. What the Israelites trusted the walls also. They didn't think that God was powerful enough to penetrate those walls. So they had to learn a lesson also. They actually kind of agreed with the Canaanites, the unbelievers who ran and, ran and got inside the city to be protected and depended on the walls, the Israelites thought, well, what can we do? They didn't cross the land, the river go in the land the first time because they think they have walled cities. How are we going to get through the walls? Israelites didn't have any strategy or any tactical movements as an army to penetrate walls. They never did that. You know, you've got to have... How many of you remember seeing uh, the Vikings? Remember the wall they had there? And they, made, they got this huge tree as a battering ram, and they ran it through, the, uh, through the gates. And they have towers that go... They used to have big towers to where they would just uh, roll the tower up to the wall to get over the wall. And then they had catapults. They had all these armaments and things. That, they didn't have any of that. And so they didn't trust their God that He could take care of business because, after all, who can get past the walls? So he's going to teach the Israelites, you need to trust me also. And the very first verse really relates to everything that's going on after it because it's what? It's about walls. Numbers chapter 13, verse 28 is where it was talking about the fortified cities and they were boohooing and just could not get past the idea that uh, we can't take this, these people because they had fortified cities. So God made an issue of the walls to teach the unbelievers that nothing could deliver them from His righteous judgment. And He also used the walls to teach the Israelites that nothing could prevent Him from fulfilling His promises. You got that? That's why it was all about the walls. 
I'll give you more information about this next time. But they have done archaeological digs, of course, around Jericho. And it's the only city where the walls did not fall in. Normally, you know, when you have battering rams and all this, the, the, the walls fall in. This time they fell out. Of course, that's just a coincidence. But it is an archaeological fact. So, what is it that you would like to penetrate, but the walls are too thick? What do we have as a battering ram? promises of God, don't we? And he's showing us through this that there's no wall too big to keep him out or to fulfill his promises. Are you sure that you don't have any walls around that are too thick for you and maybe you're thinking it's too thick for God? Aren't these applications great? I had to see the thing about it. I have to think about these things too. Only I do it before you get it. When I make this application and I'm saying, "Do you have any fortresses that you think that?" Well, let's get real. God can't can't handle that one. I have to deal with that in my own life first. So I'm I might seem somewhat relaxed now, but when I'm not. I'm squirming when I'm thinking about, "Oh yeah, what about that one?" Verse 2 is clear that it was the Lord who confronted Joshua. Uh, We've got to close on this. Let me hasten here. This is verse 2 of chapter 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You re- you, do you imagine that Joshua would really sigh relief there? If there was any doubt, you have this coming from the God of the universe. It's yours. It's yours for the taking. I can't wait till we get into the rest of this, verse 3 through 6. What is all this business circling Jericho and tooting on horns and having the priest going around and all this rigmarole? What is all that about? Well, it's a reason for it. It's, it and it makes a lot of sense. But if I start, if I start it, I gotta start it. I gotta go with it. So I can't do that this morning because it's gonna take too long. But it's a wonderful thing. I will just tell you this: He told Joshua, "The city is yours. The king is yours. The warriors are yours." But Joshua still expected to do something, and so are we. The battle is the Lord's, but. David still had to go out there and take his slingshot along, didn't he? Hmm? So we can't just sit on the porch and say, Okay, God, I'm ready for the victories. Bring them on. But the main thing is to understand, even though we are engaged in a great unseen conflict that we call the angelic conflict, the battle is the Lord's. He's already given us the victory. But we'd still have to be engaged. We're going to look at that more next time. Now, I would like everyone, please, to bow your heads. The last part of this service is directed towards anyone who would like to have relief from their enemies, from the woes that they face. They would like to have a sigh of relief for most people, unbelievers, even many believers. 
The biggest woe in their life is the fear of death because it will surely come if the Lord doesn't come first. How would you like to, for that to be gone forever, that fear? The great news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross, paid for your sins. He died, was buried, resurrected, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who trusts Him and Him alone for it. Salvation is a gift. You receive it by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting Him rather than in His work rather than your own works. Now, Father, we thank You for this time that we had to study Your Word and we pray that we will be encouraged and emboldened by it. We thank You for the wonderful mothers that we have in this church that are such good examples. May we all learn from them and have the good sense to follow their lead and that they will continue to be godly mothers. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.